Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LeDuc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're doing part three about Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party and the Civil War. And the thing that kicked off this three-part podcast was a question around the influence of Latter-day Saints and the Book of Mormon on Abraham Lincoln. And there are some fairly... Uh, dramatic claims that are made. And so in the previous two episodes, you did a lot of uh, context and setting the table for kind of what we want to talk about. I feel like that's you saying that I said uh, nothing at all. Well, you said a lot of things that for were, two hours, but that and now we're here. But didn't actually answer the question. That's right. And okay. now we're here to answer the question. So I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, Richard, you know, PhD's in business, right? So he he likes it to be efficient. I like to cut to the quick. Let's yeah, go. He, and where's my money? Yeah, that's right. Uh, he wants to. He wants and the Japanese money. Japanese rice tariffs. He Those wants are to the talk about that... rice tariffs. He wants money and power, uh, <laughs> which is why he is he has affiliated himself with a podcast that has uh, of yet lost thousands of dollars. That's that's yes. correct. Yeah, I love uh, I love driving three hours round trip to make no money and say four words. Yeah, That's I mean, my favorite thing. and there's not even a bankruptcy that can bail you out of this. <laughs> no, there's no. not. Uh, can I declare bankruptcy? Not for this business. Anyway, um, I think we needed to lay the groundwork though, because a lot of that is relatively unfamiliar to a to a nineteen oh, to a modern modern I was I was I was teasing absolutely. Well, you, you say that, but I know you meant it. I did mean it. Uh, um, and I think while there have been various claims that people have made, um. You know, look, this is a natural question. Like I started on the very first part of, of of part one, it is a natural thing. I know that you know I was a, a huge student of 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 history as a, as a a teenager. I mean, when I was fourteen, I was reading full length uh, histories of the Civil War. It was one of the ones I studied the most. I still remember reading. Colonel Arthur Fremantle's Civil War diary, who was a member of the British uh, Coldstream Guards that had come as an observer to uh, uh, to the United States in during the middle of the Civil War in in 1863 and 64, and him commenting on the movements of Lee's army because he's an observer of the Confederate States of America. I, I read that when I was like 14. I mean, I was playing Mario three. Well, I was also playing Mario Three. Let's oh, not let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? I was, I was only playing Mario. Well, I 3. was, well, and that's why you you, you got a better job. But um, uh, so I read. I, I understand the impetus because I very much remember when I was studying the the Civil War, thinking, I wonder what the Latter Day Saints did. And of course, the more I studied the Civil War, the more respect I I came to have for Abraham Lincoln for his courageous. Not only you know uh, efforts to to free the slaves, but also to keep the union together and to to persevere through all the just 
difficult personal and national tragedy. So I came to love Abraham Lincoln. And so I had the exact same thought in my head that every other Latter-day Saint would have when they're studying that era. And that is, I love Abraham Lincoln. I love Brigham Young. I'm sure that they got along like the greatest of friends, you know, beat, beat, beat. And, and no, but, and that was kind of a shock to me as I started studying. Really, it was, um, when I was in graduate school studying, you know, actual documents rather than just reading what someone else had to say that I came to understand fully the nuances of that relationship. But there are things that sometimes people point to, to try to make the relationship between Latter-day Saints and, and Abraham Lincoln closer because that's what they all want. Look, I'm that person. I want that. I love Abraham Lincoln, as I've said. I I, I always have. That was uh, I, I know that that's what everyone would say. But for me, I you know, as I studied his life, I I came to respect him even more. And so, of course, I wanted him and Joseph Smith to have run into each other in Springfield one time, uh, you know. And 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 I wanted him to to think that Brigham Young was was, was a great guy. I mean, of course, I wanted that because then the two things that I cared about my American history and my Latter-day Saint history, I, I could have both of them at the same time and they would actually build on one another. And, and, and that's, you know, something that, that I wanted, but sometimes what we want to believe and what happened are not always the same thing. So one of the things that I think drives this uh, conversation, and probably the primary thing, is the idea that Abraham Lincoln... Um, in late 1861, uh, he has checked out of the Library of Congress for him uh, a copy of the Book of Mormon. And he's going to keep that copy of the Book of Mormon for several months. Uh, he's going to keep it for, I think, eight months um, into 1862. Now, the fact that he has the book checked out is not really evidence of of, of him reading it, as anyone who's checked out a lot of books would tell you, you check out books, that doesn't always mean that you read them. I know that anyone listening right now who's ever checked out any of my books has said, I can tell you that you check out books and you don't read them. But um, that has led some people to say, well, if Lincoln had the book that long, then maybe he had it because he was reading it. He was pondering the messages that were in it. And maybe that is where he gained the courage to, to transform the Civil War from a war that was just about preserving the Union to signing and writing the Emancipation Proclamation and declaring the end of slavery. Again, I see why an American Latter-day Saint wants to believe that. I would love to believe the Abraham Lincoln that I so revere also revered some of the things I believe that that brings us into a proximity with one another. It, it makes God even more, uh, present in, in both my national history and my religious history. So, you know, there's a, a pretty prominent book that's been written uh, about this and, and well-read that makes this and other claims about Abraham Lincoln's relationship um, with Latter-day Saints and primarily using this example that Lincoln checked the Book of Mormon out and that he read it. And over the course of time, that the messages of the Book of Mormon 
not only transformed how he thought about Latter-day Saints, making him think much more positively about Latter-day Saints, but also transformed how he thought about slavery and the nation as a whole. In fact, this book goes so far as to claim that the Book of Mormon is the reason that Lincoln saw the United States as having a covenant relationship with God and that that covenant had been broken and it needed to be renewed. Again, I understand why a Latter-day Saint wants to hear that, but it's important to understand that there are arguments that are academic in nature and there are arguments that are not. And we, we've, we've done this with a lot of podcasts. I mean, we, we looked at uh, a so-called documentary that didn't actually follow any documents and uh, made scandalous, ridiculous claims in order to try to prove a theological point. Um, in, in that sense, the, the author of that documentary had deliberately tried to um, falsify information in some regard or to make outlandish claims to try to destroy people's faith. And, and so there was, there was not, not, it wasn't a good faith effort. I mean, to say, I mean, when you say someone's trying to destroy faith, yeah. Yeah. Where's my rim shot on that, Richard? I, I, I need you to say it yelling. Yes. From the, from the other seat. That's right. Um, but We've also looked at, at at other examinations, such as like the White Horse prophecy and the and the vision that um, Wilford Woodruff records of uh, that's attributed to John Taylor. In those cases, people were believing them and endorsing them, but not in a bad faith effort, at least not mostly, but because they wanted to believe what they said. So, so there really are different ways to examine this. But as historians, what do we look at? We look at what you can actually demonstrate through the documents. And one of the claims that's made by this book is that Lincoln goes through a personal transformation because he's reading the Book of Mormon. And, you know, here's some of the evidence that is given of that uh, personal transformation. At, at, At one point, the book is going to make a claim that it's possible Lincoln was actually clandestinely reading the Book of Mormon and it was being mistaken for another book and that was causing the transformation. Richard, you want to read that? Yeah, sure. I immediately thought of something. During Lincoln's months of conversation, eyewitnesses testified that they had seen him, whether in his office or in an obscure corner of a steamboat transport, reading a dog-eared pocket copy of the New Testament. He did dog-ear his pages. I thought to myself, I wonder if these witnesses thought carefully enough at the books he was reading. Perhaps it was not only the New Testament that he was engrossed in. My mind also recalled the true account of one witness who might have seen the president during the thick of, of his process of crystallization. A witness who might have stumbled in upon Lincoln and his Book of Mormon experience. Exactly eight days before issuing the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, and exactly 15 days before returning his Book of Mormon to the library, Lincoln had one of the longest nights of his life. He locked himself in his study and asked not to be disturbed. He was eventually reading and studying something until daybreak. That morning, he received a knock on the door of his study. When he realized it was his his friend Orville Browning, he made a brief 
exception to his earlier order to be left alone and permitted him to come in. Browning was alarmed when he saw Lincoln's appearance. According to Browning, he looked weary, careworn, and troubled. I shook hands with him and asked how he was. He said tolerably well. Browning told the president he must take better care of himself. Lincoln would not release the powerful grip he had formed with Browning, his huge hand enveloping the hand of his friend. Then, according to Browning, Lincoln replied in a very tender and touching tone, Browning, I must die sometime. He looked very sad, and there was a cadence of deep sadness in his voice. We parted, both both of us with tears in our eyes. So this is one of the examples where he gives of somebody potentially coming upon Abraham Lincoln when he could have possibly been reading the Book of Mormon. At least when he was studying and deep in thought for something. And I think that's, you know, you can kind of get the feel as you read that portion, all of the might-haves and the possibilities of, is it possible that Abraham Lincoln was studying the Book of Mormon during that time? Well, again, as a historian, when you're talking about is something possible, well, of, of course. I mean, are things possible? Yes. But historians when they're doing history, don't default to the least likely scenario. The least likely scenario indeed sometimes does happen. Um, it, it is a point of fact that sometimes, you know, the percentages, you know, if, if something happens one in a hundred times, there is a chance that you will be there on that one time that it happens. But it's not what you assume happens. Um, so that's why historians base their arguments on the uh, on the basis of not of conjecture, but on documents that demonstrate something different. So, so there there's one thing where he kind of makes a quite a bit of a jump here, just a couple of paragraphs down. After Lincoln had made his decision on emancipation, even his own wife questioned this profound change of his from his earlier policies and promises. She asked, "Will you really go through with it?" With a glance to heaven and then back to Mary, he simply replied, I am a man under orders. I cannot do otherwise. By this time, his closest friends, as well as a growing number of general uh, populace, would have agreed with the Chicago lawyer who declared, You may depend upon it. The Lord runs Lincoln. To which a local Methodist preacher responded, calling the statement, The true theory and solution of this terrible war. And this, I believe, was likely do in no small degree to the Book of Mormon. Right. So that's that's a huge statement. Um, and it also suggests that what Lincoln is wrestling with is whether or not to make the decision to free the slaves at all. Um, historians of Lincoln's life would, would make the counter argument that Lincoln is certainly not wrestling with the idea of whether or not slaves should be freed. It, in fact, it, it's he's actually racing against uh, the radicals, uh, uh, the more radical Republicans in the Congress who themselves want to pass an Emancipation Act in the Congress um, because they think Lincoln is moving too slowly. Lincoln is, is, is unsure what to do. I mean, in an earlier speech, he had said that if he could save the Union by freeing the slaves, he would do that. If he could save the Union by not freeing the slaves, he would do that. If he could save the Union by, by freeing some slaves and leaving others enslaved, he would do that. I mean, the, the, the goal of trying to save the Union is, is, is also very much in his mind. And so the author here wants to try to argue that Lincoln came to the decision 
to write the Emancipation Proclamation to free the slaves because of his study of the Book of Mormon. So there's a lot of problems with that. First, we don't even know whether or not he studied the Book of Mormon. Second, Lincoln's writings and, and life demonstrate that he had an aversion for and, and despised slavery long before 1862 um, and is in regular conversation with his cabinet and with members of Congress about whether or not to issue something like the Emancipation Proclamation. The fear of issuing it too early was... Since the North had done terribly in battle in 1862 and 61, it seemed like it was a the Hail Mary pass at the end of the first half, you know, the, the, uh, of a football game. Y- you, you lose battle after battle after battle to Robert E. Lee, and then you follow it up by saying, oh, yeah, and by the way, all the slaves in the South are free. Well, you, you may want to have some kind of victory to to uh, to demonstrate that with. And in fact, that's what Lincoln will do. He'll wait, even though he has this first draft written in this early stage, he will wait until the, you know, air quotes victory at the Battle of Antietam, which is, is really more of a draw. Lee invades the North and uh, outside of uh, Frederick, Maryland, um, he, he's going to have this, this cataclysmic battle. It's the, this single bloodiest day of the civil war and, um, Lee's troops are forced to withdraw. And so the union calls it a great victory. I mean, point of fact, the battle itself is basically a stalemate, but it does stop the invasion of the North. And it's, it's decided that on the basis of that, that the emancipation proclamation is going to be going to be issued on the basis of that, of that victory. So there, there's a lot of overly simplistic things going on there in that argument. And attributing that to the fact that Lincoln had the Book of Mormon, when there are no sources that say that, is, is a very odd thing. Lincoln, as the author notes, was a voracious reader. He's reading all kinds of things. And he is not a spring chicken either. He has been someone involved in the fight to at least e- uh, end the expansion of slavery for decades of his life. To attribute to him uh, the idea of emancipating the slaves during the midst of the Civil War, the fact that he had wrestled with God while reading the Book of Mormon, is again something I would love to believe. But I would only love to believe it if it was actually true, rather than something that that was kind of a spiritual Twinkie, something that was that w- sure sounded great, but didn't actually fill my uh, fill the the need of truth. So, so the the timing of this matters, as you said. He checks out uh, a copy of the Book of Mormon from the from the Library of Congress in around November of 1861 um and so he's, he has it for several months what are some of the things that are that are happening because uh, this this kind of jumps now now we're skipping ahead to be fair to the author here we're kind of skipping around a little bit but but there are some things that happen between him checking out that book and the emancipation proclamation Right. Uh, so especially vis-a-vis Latter-day Saints and so I think the author wants to argue that Lincoln, uh, well, the author does argue, not wants to. The author argues that having checked out the Book of Mormon, 
Lincoln's stance towards the Latter-day Saints becomes softened, even though his party was very anti-Mormon, that he becomes softer towards the Mormons himself because of reading the Book of Mormon, and that the Book of Mormon, in turn, inspired Lincoln to become a different person, one that would issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So one of the first things that you'd want to examine if someone was making the claim that Lincoln read something and that that changed what he thought or what he believed is you'd want to examine whether or not he ever said that. So that's the first thing you'd look to see. If someone is going to say, you know, think of Joseph Smith, we know that something inspired Joseph Smith. How do we know that something inspired Joseph Smith? Because Joseph Smith said in multiple accounts, I read James 1.5 and never had any passage of scripture come with more power. Right? That, that We know that James inspired Joseph Smith. Now, maybe there were other biblical passages that also inspired Joseph Smith. And one could speculate and theorize on it. You know, I think the fact that Joseph had a hard time talking about whether it was fire that came from heaven or whether it was light that came from heaven was because Joseph must have been reading in Isaiah about the everlasting burnings uh, uh, that, that, that constitute God because Joseph later in his life uses the term from Isaiah, everlasting burnings. So that actually is probably, I mean, you can see how someone could build an argument that Joseph was probably also inspired by Isaiah. And it might be true. And it might be true. The problem is, if I begin teaching it, not that it, there's a slight possibility that it might be true, but as it's actually more likely than not, well, I'm discounting the actual evidence that I have. And that is Joseph is more than willing to tell us exactly what did inspire him. And he says it multiple times. So why would I discount what he actually says for what I wish he would have said. And an even further question of that is, why is it that I wish he would have said something else? Is it because I you know, wrote a, and I didn't, so if you go to try to find it, you won't find it, but let's say I wrote a commentary on Isaiah, and is that the reason why I hoped that Joseph was also inspired by Isaiah? If it was, then now my motives are actually coloring how I'm interpreting history. In this case, the author, a Latter-day Saint, very much wants to make this case because he sees Lincoln as such a, a, an incredible champion, which we all do. I would say almost universally, American Latter-day Saints respect, if not revere, Abraham Lincoln. So, so that's not the issue. It's not the issue that, oh, this author really respects Lincoln. Everybody does. It becomes the question of, and in attempting to make that connection, is more harm done than good? What do I mean by that? Well, I have a great deal of experience counseling with people who have had faith crises, if you want to call it something else, where their, their faith has been shaken and sometimes shattered because something that they always thought was true ended up not actually being accurate. I mean, we've talked about this with the word of wisdom. If you, 
if you really believe that Joseph Smith never drank any alcohol, and that's one of the bases of your testimony is that I won't ever drink because even when they were breaking bone out of Joseph Smith's leg, he refused to drink alcohol and I'm going to be like Joseph. I don't know if you feel like that. And then you find out that Joseph Smith did drink alcohol. Well, well, your world can come crashing down. And it's because you, you placed your faith in something that wasn't actually true in the first place. The spirit can only testify of truth. So it's important that while we can hear things that might make us feel better about what we believe, it's important that we investigate whether or not it actually is the case. Because testimonies built upon simply good feelings, but things that aren't actually factually correct, are sandy foundations. And, and in the world we live in, the rains and the floods beat down. And you might be in conversation with someone one day and try to say to them, you know what, the Book of Mormon is so powerful, even Abraham Lincoln read it and it changed his mind. And the response is going to be not just the general mockery that all of us have to endure whenever we say we believe, and then you know multiple comments about polygamy, obviously. Um, it, it's going to be that you've been duped, you've been defrauded, that no historian, no one with any historical uh, you know uh, accolades at all, respected in the historical community, believes that. And I mean inside the church. And I mean outside the church. It's not just non-Latter-day Saint historians who hear this claim that the Book of Mormon influenced uh, influenced Abraham Lincoln's uh, politics and personal feelings that see that as a completely, not only unsupported claim, but a reckless, you know, straw-grasping claim. But Latter-day Saint historians who desperately want to believe that Abraham Lincoln really believed, they also see it as wholly erroneous. There's a reason why you wouldn't be able to find a historian at the church history library who believes that this is the scenario that happened. There's a reason why. And it's not because they don't love Abraham Lincoln. Heavens, we have uh, historians at the Church History Library who used to work at the Lincoln Library. They, they love Abraham Lincoln. It's not a matter of they don't respect Abraham Lincoln. It, it's a matter of facts. And facts are sometimes not able to be bent to the whims of, of our emotions. And this is one of those cases. Um, part of that claim is that because he read the Book of Mormon, it transformed what Lincoln thought about the Latter-day Saints. Now, if you remember what we read from our, our our last podcast, Wilford Woodruff doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of transformation going on. Um, he, he certainly feels well into 1862 that the federal government is antagonistic towards the saints. It's a very important thing whenever you're talking about a persecuted minority group that you allow that minority group 
to explain what their feelings are to the majority, not the other way around. It's easy to pat them on the head and say, I'm sure you're just fine with President Buchanan. Well, the Latter-day Saints will let you know that they're not. And, and no, but Buchanan hasn't really done anything. I don't really care what you think Buchanan has or hasn't done. Uh, this is sometimes the reaction of people to the fact that Latter-day Saints hate Martin Van Buren. I, I've, I've actually been in academic conferences where, where people have said, well, that it's irrational that the Latter-day Saints hate Martin Van Buren. I mean, what was he supposed to do? They, they expect him to just, you know, send an army to Missouri. I mean, that's preposterous. Martin Van Buren couldn't have done that. The Latter-day Saints are irrational to be upset. Well, that might be true, but it also is, is a meaningless observation when it comes to how do Latter-day Saints feel about Martin Van Buren? You can say all day long that Martin Van Buren couldn't have done anything. But that doesn't help the Latter-day Saint who buried their child in Hans Mill because Missouri State Militia murdered him. That, that, that is of, of small comfort to the people that have actually suffered those horrors. And I think that's something that you have to do here as well. It's not for an author to tell us that the Latter-day Saints were fine with Abraham Lincoln because, you know, he read the Book of Mormon and became their champion. It's for Latter-day Saints themselves at the time, through their records, through their diaries, through their journals, to tell us what they thought. And and the reality is, the the second piece of evidence a historian would look at at a claim like this is... Well, if you're claiming that Abraham Lincoln read something and that's what changed his opinion of the Latter-day Saints and of slavery, then I guess we need to find out whatever else Abraham Lincoln read during the same time, right? And yes, it's true that uh, Lincoln has a Book of Mormon checked out of the Library of Congress. But he also has several other things checked out of the Library of Congress. For instance, he is checked out um, one book on, uh, on, uh, from a non-Latter-day Saint author uh, called The Mormons. Now, this book is a fairly complimentary book written by John Gunnison. John Gunnison is an army engineer who goes out to Utah early, and he will write this, really, this early history of Utah territory. And not all of it, I mean... The, I think he thinks he's being flattering of the Mormons. I mean, he is, he's on very friendly terms with the, with the Latter-day Saints. Um, but there are certainly some aspects of his book that a Latter-day Saint would be like, ah, thanks, but no thanks, John. But um, it, it's still a relatively positive examination of the Mormons, um, kind of diffusing the whole, you know, they're this evil, ugly other that you have to be afraid of. But that's not the only thing that Abraham Lincoln reads. Um, he's actually going to have two other books that he checks out. And again, I don't know whether or not he read them, but he checked out at the same time. That yeah, he at least he at least has the same probability of having read these as he has the probability of having, you know, read uh, 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 some of these other statements. So, for instance, uh, he checks out of the Library of Congress a book called Mormonism. Well, you might. You might already guess that a book called Mormonism isn't exactly <laughs> written by a Mormon, right? Um, this is written by John Hyde. Hyde has a lengthy diatribe in this book 
um, which is seen as he's writing as an expose. He's writing it uh, attacking the Latter-day Saints and primarily attacking plural marriage. Uh, the full title of the book is Mormonism, Its Leaders and Designs. I mean, the, the title of that book already tells you what he thinks. And John Hyde's going to claim that he has all kinds of insider knowledge. Why? Formerly a Mormon elder and resident of Salt Lake City. So I'm going to give you the inside scoop. To the honest believers in Mormonism, my friends, in writing this following work, I was not actuated by a base design of helping to malign an unpopular people, nor by the unworthy one of administering to mere idle curiosity. I wrote it neither to feed public prejudice nor to supply public scandal. I wrote it for you, to you, and therefore I, ded I dedicate it. I know your sincerity. I also know your delusion. As sincerely deceived as yourselves, I have preceded you to Salt Lake City. Some of the things of which I saw there with the reflections they have suggested are contained herein. Of the much that ought to be said, I have endeavored to say little. The subject, however, is by no means exhausted. While it is better to learn by personal experience than ever remain ignorant, it is far wiser to profit by the experience of others. Although the practices of individuals cannot determine the principles of communities, yet when these pr practices are criminal and those individuals assume to be prophets and apostles, all men ought to hesitate before committing themselves to their jurisdiction, believing their pretensions or imitating their examples. So, I mean, how does John Hyde actually feel? So he read this one right after the Emancipation Proclamation, probably. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's uh, during the same uh, the same time period that it could have been affected, right? Okay. It's interesting to learn the peculiarities of a remote nation or an ancient or an ancient age. It's far more important, however, that we should correctly understand the character and practices of any extraordinary people in our own day, Mormonism and Mormons. Are subjects that not only deserve attention or excite interest, but demand the most serious consideration. The meanness of its origin, the singularity in its history, its present anomalous position, its still increasing dissemination, the mysterious influence it exercises over its followers, and its ultimate destiny should commend its investigation to all persons. As a curious example of successful imposture and a stern proof of human fanaticism, it must interest the philosopher. As a system of absolute autocracy in the center of the republic, it must attract the attention of politicians. As ensuring human misery and consummating human degradation in the cases of thousands of credulous men and women and thousands more helpless children, it should be noticed by the philanthropist. As a religious delusion, increasing very rapidly and entailing not only present suffering but eternal loss on its infatuated adherence, it ought to arouse the divine to thought and action. So John Hyde's making a very eloquent case that every single American should have a real problem with Mormonism. Now, he said politicians should take note of this autocracy that is that has sprung up within our republic. Did Abraham Lincoln read those lines? Did he read them and it caused him to think something's got to be done about those Mormons? Maybe I need to send an army to occupy Utah, even though Brigham Young has declared that he is loyal to the Union. Maybe I need to send an army. You can see the problem here. 
as easily as I can speculate that perhaps he read the Book of Mormon and that changed what he thought, he could just as easily have read other things and that changed what he thought. The reality is, over the course of the next several months, the actions that Lincoln is going to take vis-a-vis the Mormons in Salt Lake are not seen as positive by the Mormons. Um, Let me give you a rundown of those as a for instance. Um, In uh, the spring of 1861, uh, there is a very singular occurrence that takes place. Now, the army has not yet made it. You know, they haven't yet occupied Utah. But the War Department, with Abraham Lincoln's direction, they send a telegram directly to Brigham Young. Now, Brigham Young used to be the governor of Utah Territory until 1857. Well, it's 1862 now, so we're we're five years removed from that. But of course, he is the head of the church, and nearly everyone living in the territory are members of the church. And the telegram asks if the Mormons would be willing to raise a company of troops to protect the overland stage and mail routes. Now, that request comes in uh, the, the spring of 1862, and Brigham Young is going to respond immediately. He's going to immediately request that you know the, the company of troops be fitted out, and they go into what is today modern-day Wyoming to guard the, the overland stage and mail route. Now, part of the reason why is the regular army that had been guarding it um, was at, at all been called away, right? So you're, you, you're utilizing Latter-day Saints. And these troops are troops in service of the federal government, the Union Army, during the American Civil War. And these are the only troops that, as a unified body anyway, are going to, to fight for the Union during the Civil War from the territory of Utah. Now, there's going to be individuals from the territory of Utah who will, who will go fight, but... Um, as far as uh, the Latter-day Saint involvement in the Civil War, there's not very much for, for those reasons we already stated. So you would think at that moment, the fact that Lincoln has requested troops directly through Brigham Young, Brigham Young has immediately supp- supplied them, that that would then be the demonstration that there's a kind of detente between Latter-day Saints and, and, and Abraham Lincoln personally, if not the federal government. What greater evidence of loyalty could you have than the fact that you're sending troops to fight in a civil war? It seems like that's, well, I'll show you we're fighting. We, we did exactly what you told us to do. We didn't just not secede. We're now providing troops. Now, it's not very many. It's, it's only 160 troops. It's not, it's not a big deal at all. But it is the only request the federal government makes of them, and they then respond. Um, But that idea that it's a representation of this kind of um, new thinking that Lincoln has about the Mormons, and perhaps he even has that new thinking because he read the Book of Mormon, again, is really kind of belied by the fact that he's, he's reading other things. One of the other things that he has read just recently is... Or at least checked out. Yes, possibly have read. Maybe he hasn't read it. Um, is a, a book uh, written by a fellow Illinoisan uh, that 
Lincoln, you know, likely knows uh, that is Mormonism in all its ages or the rise, progress, and causes of Mormonism with the biography of its author and founder, Joseph Smith Jr. by Professor J.B. Turner, Illinois College, Jacksonville, Illinois. You have an idea of what Turner thinks because the quote he includes on the front page is, and that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. I'm not sure what he thinks about Joseph Smith before opening the pages of the book, but I'm guessing it's going to be negative, given the fact that he decided to quote Deuteronomy saying that false prophets should be put to death. And what happened to Joseph Smith? Oh, yeah. Um, This uh, book um, is written earlier, so I mean, I don't want to, uh, I guess I don't want to indict uh, indict him uh, for that because he does write it before Joseph Smith is murdered. Although I'm not entirely sure that that makes me feel more comfortable either. Uh, yeah. He says that false prophets should be put to death and then Joseph, Joseph Smith, Smith is put, put to, to death, death and he's a professor in Illinois writing a, a book that says that false prophets should be put to death. Well, Jonathan Turner, uh, also a complicated figure. Look, Jonathan Turner is, a, he is a, uh, a a leader of trying to establish land-grant colleges, getting more education to people. He is a fervent abolitionist because he sees that slavery is a sin in the eyes of God. And here's another great example. The same thing that makes Jonathan Turner see slavery as a sin in the eyes of God is the same thing that makes him see Mormonism as a sin in the eyes of God. Now notice this is 1842. This is not a book like uh, uh, John Hyde's, which was written in 1857, and it can just spend the entire time saying it. You don't believe me? Polygamy. And then then you win the argument. In, in this case, this is a book that was written prior to at least widespread belief that the Latter-day Saints are practicing polygamy. They are in secret, at least Joseph and a few others are by 1842. And John C. Bennett will, in 1842, in mid-1842, make all kinds of claims about the Mormons practicing polygamy, which are many of them false and, and aggrandized. So there will be that kind of scandal, but but it's still not uh, seen generally. Let me give you an idea of what uh, Jonathan Turner, again, a native Illinoisan um, uh, uh, who is is going to write this and that is also checked out um, by Abraham Lincoln during this time. Um, you would think that he was writing about uh, the Russian army invading Ukraine, given the way he's talking about uh, the growth of Mormonism in his introduction alone. The Mormons boast of 100,000 adherents in this country and more than 10,000 in Great Britain, where their faith is making rapid progress. This may be an exaggeration, but at all events, it is time that the absurdities of their scheme were exposed. They are, in truth, the most dangerous and virulent enemies to our political and religious purity and our social and civil peace that now exist in the Union. Not so much, however, on the ground of their direct as their indirect influences. The ravages in the front of their march are far less to be dreaded than the moral pestilence that follows them. The 
bubbles of fanaticism it is true leap and sparkle around their prow but the dull and sullen waves of atheism roll and spread wide in their wake behind it has ever been true that they have made 100 infidels to every dozen converts. This fact has not been properly heeded. There is much reason to believe that many of their popular leaders are at heart infidels. Those who can believe that skeptical and ambitious men who could not be converted to Christianity have been really made to believe in Joe Smith may do so if they please. The multitudes who fall into their ranks and retire are in general reduced to absolute atheism. Some are recovered again. Many are not, but sink still into deeper and stronger delusions. In their public addresses, nothing is more common than to hear them defend the Book of Mormon in promiscuous assemblies by attacking and ridiculing the Bible either directly or indirectly. Their object generally is to show that if the Book of Mormon is ridiculous in whole or in part, then the Bible is so too. By these and similar processes, they succeed in affecting the minds of the thoughtless multitude with the vague impression that the Book of Mormon is at least as truly of divine authority as the Bible. A few receive both as divine. A far greater number make up their minds to have nothing to do with either. So one of the things that's really upsetting, Turner, is the Latter-day Saints are responding to people saying, hey, there's no possible way that the Book of Mormon could be true by Latter-day Saints saying, well, how do you know the Bible's true? I mean, if uh, you're saying that angels can't appear to people, when the Bible's kind of got a lot of angels appearing to people. Oh, you're saying that Jesus couldn't have appeared to anyone? We might have to talk to Paul about that. And you can see the reason why uh, that, that argument was being made back then in 1842. So he sees it as undermining the Bible because you're comparing the two. Um, here is a, uh, 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 an example of, of, of another thought that he has. Like all other fanaticisms, Mormonism is adapted in its own nature to awaken either the indignation and contempt or the sympathy and compassion of mankind. It is not the design of this book to excite the latter. Okay, I don't want your compassion. I want your contempt. <laughs> but rather by invoking the former to exterminate, if possible, that silly credulity on which all similar delusions rest. The folly of Mormonism and the Mormons and the turpitude of their leaders are the principal theme of our pages. We leave others the appropriate task of bewailing the miseries and ruin of this strange and extravagant enthusiasm. Wow. Given the fact that an actual extermination order was written, um, it, it's probably indelicate to use the term extermination in relation to what the Latter-day Saints should be made to experience. I think prior to the Missouri violence, one might be able to say, oh, I'm just using extermination, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just using it, you know, metaphorically. Well, until they killed everybody and now, now you don't get to use it, you know, metaphorically anymore. The point is, uh, this is a book that Abraham Lincoln also had checked out of the library. Was he affected by this, by this fellow Republican, fellow uh, anti-slavery advocate from his home state who said that Mormonism was this delusion that had to be exterminated? How do I know 
Now, while and while I might say, well, look, he called for volunteers from the Mormons uh, in in Utah. That's great evidence that he must have been affected by the, the the Book of Mormon. The reality of events that take place next demonstrate that that's certainly not the case. While those troops go off to fight, this the company Lot Smith is the leader of this company that goes off and I say to go fight, they just go off and and do guard post duty essentially in in Wyoming so so it actually probably was the worst assignment of the entire war actually let worse than Gettysburg <laughs> worse than Shiloh Antietam has nothing on being near Rock Springs in the winter time I mean I get I you know I at least they were there in the spring that's true so that makes it the second worst place that's you know, outside of Pickett's charge in in the Civil War um so that those troops march off but while they're marched off, there are political realities that are taking place. Here are some of them. The, I don't know if you want to call it the rump Congress of the United States, because you, ha- you, know, you have all of these seceded states that have taken all of their Congress people and their senators with them. Uh, the, it, it is very, very Republican. Um, it, it, it is... Uh, dominant in the number of Congress people and, um, well, I guess I should just say congressmen because they didn't allow women to be Congress uh, persons at the time, um, but um, and and senators, that the Republicans are dominant. And in the spring of 1862, they decide, along with all their preparations for war, along with uh, um, all the the things that they have to do for the crisis as they are trying to figure out how to make inroads in this battle against the Confederacy. They also take up some very political issues, issues that they had been trying for years to pass, but had always been stopped because there were too many Democrats in the House and in the Senate. Well, now there's not very many. And so the Homestead Act, which they had been trying to pass ever since their party was formed and that the Whig Party had been trying to pass ever since the early 1850s and that people had talked about ever since the 1840s, is finally passed in both houses. Now, remember, the sponsors of the bill, as we we read in our first uh, uh, lecture, are adamant that one of the reasons why you pass the bill is it will help destroy Mormonism in Utah. Abraham Lincoln has just read, or at least has had to, he had the ability to have just read, he's just checked out two books that call for the extermination of Mormons. And that bill, whose sponsors say part of its effects will be to extinguish Mormonism, that's the title from their speech, not mine, um, Abraham Lincoln signs that bill. He doesn't veto it. He doesn't speak out against it. He doesn't say, you know, I like the idea of the Homestead Act, but I'm not okay with this provision that's trying to extinguish Mormonism. He signs it. And I think you could easily make a defense of Lincoln to say, well, in the midst of the Civil War, where he's desperately trying to get support for all of the the, the difficult things going on, 1862 is 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 really the worst year of the war for for the union. I mean, well, 61 was was also bad for them. Frankly, <laughs> 64 wasn't good either. I mean, really uh th- there were a lot of problems for the union in the Civil War, but um y- you could easily defend Abraham Lincoln and say, you know, um he he had so much on his plate. 
you can't you can't fault him for having uh you know not tried to pick a political fight with these radical uh anti-mormon republicans who are passing this bill but think about whether or not you would accept that from one of your leaders today if there if and again, I, I, it doesn't matter to me what political party you are, mainly because you're no longer listening. So, so regardless, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. Yeah, if you're, we still have them after parts one and two. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm wow. assuming that only my mom is listening, and she's been fairly ambivalent about her political party. I mean, as we talked about on the bonus episode. And so, um, it, it, regardless of what political party you belong to, I want you to take that out of it. I want you to just assume whether or not you would accept if Congress passed a law requiring that marriages could no longer take place inside of Latter-day Saint temples, that marriages could not, no marriages can happen in a temple because there are some countries that have passed such laws. Would you accept as an argument to defend the sitting president, whoever it is when that happens or if it ever happened, would you accept an argument from someone that, well, yeah, he didn't veto it and he signed that bill, but if he would have vetoed it, they might have overridden the veto anyway. And it also would have made him like a lot of infighting inside his party. So that's the reason why he didn't veto it. I'm guessing that most of us wouldn't accept that excuse from whoever the president was or his defenders. You wouldn't say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, he wanted to veto it. He really did, but he just didn't. The reality is Abraham Lincoln didn't veto it. The law is passed and it becomes the law of the land. And this, it doesn't actually end up having the, the effect that the supporters hope that it will because Utah is so terrible, people don't even want to go there for free land. So but perhaps <laughs> perhaps even the defense of Abraham Lincoln on this particular one is, well, I know this is what the, the writers of the bill and the major proponents of the bill, this is what they say, but that's not, for, for me, that's not what the purpose of this is. That we, we want... You know, we want additional people in these territories and lands. So maybe it had nothing to do with Mormonism per se. Well, at least you could say that Lincoln is rejecting the sponsors of the bill's argument. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Perhaps. Yes. But then do we have any record of him saying that? Well, we're we're far we're far yeah. past having yeah. records At this point, or we're, evidence. We're speculating about speculations that we want to speculate about hypotheticals that we haven't speculated about. Yeah, that's essentially where I'm coming at. Or also the book that we're commenting on. Um, so, uh, there's that past, but then much more problematic is the moral anti-bigamy act. Now that it's named after Justin Morrill, which is M O R R I L L not moral as an immoral, although it sounds kind of the same. I'm sure Justin Morrill loved the fact that his name sounded like morality. Um, the, the moral anti-bigamy act is finally passed, which makes Plural marriage, polygamy, illegal in the territories of the United States. And that law is going to come into effect July 1st of 1862. What does that mean? It means that while these uh, Latter-day Saint troops are out serving with the Union Army in Wyoming, that quite a few of them actually are actually going to return to Utah as criminals. Because the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act is actually an ex post facto law. Even though the Constitution prohibits ex post facto laws, 
What do you know? This one's not going to prohibit it. Making it a crime, even if you had entered into a polygamous marriage at some point in the future, I mean, at some point in the past, if, if you if you entered in a polygamous marriage in 1861 and this law was passed in 1862, it didn't matter. You were still a criminal for practicing polygamy at all. So, uh, that one's tough. That one's tougher. Yeah, right? it's a, yeah, it's a little bit tougher to justify. I don't know whether or not this law, which specifically names <laughs> Mormons and their religious practices in Utah, I don't. I just don't know whether or not that's anti-Mormon or not. Seems like it might not be. Uh, I mean, uh, you can see the problem, right? I mean, th- I want you to think of the irony. These men left Salt Lake to go defend their country and came back to find out that while they were gone, they became criminals because they left more than one wife at home when they left. It's pretty hard to make an argument that that's not an anti-Mormon law. And again, the sponsors of it, the point of it, is all based upon ending what is seen as this horrid practice by the Republican Party. Again, does Abraham Lincoln veto it? Does he send it back to Congress saying, you know what, change the provisions so that it's not an ex post facto law? Does he make statements about it publicly saying, I know this law is passed, but I hope that it's not enforced? He doesn't do any of those things, but he does have his name signed on the bottom of that law, making it the first specifically anti-Mormon law passed in American history. You can see part of the problem then of basing my testimony on the basis of Abraham Lincoln essentially being a dry Mormon. He read, he read the Book of Mormon and was, was, was just one step away from hopping into the baptismal font in order to become one in practice as well as in belief. But is sending an army and continues to send that army. That army arrives uh, in, in the spring in 1862 to occupy Utah against the consent of its citizens. He signs a law, the Homestead Act, opening up Utah to settlement from trying to attract Gentile settlers, at least according to the laws, the, 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 the law's sponsors. And to cap it all off, signs a law criminalizing polygamy. This is not something that happened in a vacuum. Whigs and Republicans had been trying to make polygamy illegal in the territories for more than a decade. And now Abraham Lincoln is the one who signs that that bill into law. So so you have at the end of 1861 him checking out a copy of the Book of Mormon and several other books that you've mentioned here. Then they bring troops to Wyoming. They bring it you know, because they don't have enough troops because they're all fighting yes. in the war. So Latter-day Saints send a company of troops to to serve in what is now Wyoming. Then the federal government brings about 800 or so troops into Utah. To occupy Utah against the consent. In fact, the, the, the Latter-day Saints protest. They send numerous telegrams to the war office. And there actually is among the Abraham Lincoln papers, although not mentioned in this book, um, Abraham Lincoln does send a note to the War Department that um, the Latter-day Saint representative in, in Utah in 1863 has protested that the army is continuing to occupy Utah 
Um, and, and, and so Lincoln essentially, you know, sends it. So he, he's well aware. Lincoln is well aware that the Latter-day Saints are not happy that Utah is being occupied because he responds to the request to have the troops removed. And his response is to defer it to the War Department to let them decide. So checks out those books, sends troops, passes two specifically identified as anti-Mormon laws. Then, uh, then later in that same year, drafts the Emancipation Proclamation. And then in about September issues actually issues it yeah so he has the first draft that he's going to draft in the in the summer and you know the author wants to make the point that it's 15 days before I mean, he yeah, drafts he, it. He, he obviously was studying it and that's what caused him to draft it and again one of the reasons why an actual historian would just scoff at this idea is it's a it's almost a mockery of the rest of lincoln's life and writing it's it seems like the exact opposite thing is happening here as a historian if you were to look at what Lincoln did to the Latter-day Saints, which the Latter-day Saints, now again, it, it, it's one thing for me to sit back and say, well, the Homestead Act, that wasn't really that bad for them. Okay, that's pretty easy to say from my giant ivory tower that I'm looking down upon them from, from 150 years later. The reality is they saw it as an attempt to hurt them because the people who sponsored the bill said, hey, this is going to hurt them. So surprisingly, Latter-day Saints said, I think they might be trying to hurt us with this. It's, it's possible that the people who sponsored it saying, let's hurt the Mormons. In fact, not hurt. Let's use the word that they use, extinguish the Mormons. Um, which I've never seen as a positive. I don't know if you have. I have or crush them under the advancing tread of Christian civilizations. That also... Extinguish sounds better. It does, actually. I mean, it does. You know, under the advancing <laughs> tread, I mean, they don't have tanks yet, but it does sound like a Tiananmen Square thing it going does. on. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, the, uh, the, the second bill, of course, this attempt to pass this anti-polygamy bill is, is something that's been a decade in the making. And, and it's Abraham Lincoln that signs it in. in. And so if you were a historian examining this without faith in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you would look at the various things Abraham Lincoln had checked out of the Library of Congress and you would say to yourself, well, what's clear is that in late 1861 and early 1862, Abraham Lincoln has a problem. He appointed a new governor to Utah Territory who apparently attempted to assault a woman and was beaten with a fire shovel and then ran off of his post. So, so th there's a problem there. I need to appoint a new governor. There are two bills working their way through Congress that are specifically targeting Utah Territory. And uh, should I then... You know, it, what do I need to think about the Latter-day Saints? I've already ordered an army to occupy Utah. Is, you know, w what should I do? The conclusion that you would come to as a historian is, given the antagonistic things that were done, Lincoln concluded that the Latter-day Saints were fanatics and a problem, and therefore you needed an army there to watch them. You needed to make sure they were okay. And that Lincoln himself was fine with a law that 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 
that outlawed polygamy. I mean, one thing that Lincoln defenders rarely know is that Abraham Lincoln is going to, uh, he's going to suspend the writ of habeas corpus for the entire country. What does that mean? The writ of habeas corpus is what allows you to be charged with a crime when you are arrested. Um, it is the, the produ- production of the body, meaning you, you have to be arraigned for your crime. You can't just dwell forever in prison. You have, you have a right to a speedy trial. By suspending the writ of habeas corpus, he essentially allowed people to be arrested without ever being charged. So you'd sit in jail forever because without ever being arraigned, then you wouldn't ever have to have that trial. I would love to tell you that there were no abuses of the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, but because I said government and I said far-reaching powers, I think you're well aware that there's going to be some, and, and it is employed against people in sometimes tragic ways. And I'm not saying Abraham Lincoln's running around throwing people in jail. He's in the midst of this cataclysmic war, and he feels like, given how many traitors or potential traitors there are, especially in the border states. I mean, D.C. itself is in the center of a non-secessionist state, so-called Maryland. But the only reason Maryland doesn't secede is Union troops surround the Maryland State House when they're about to vote. And they're like, oh, I guess we better not vote on it. And so they stay in the Union, but they're not happily in the Union. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing Lincoln for the fact that he suspended it. It's obviously the most expansive federal power grab that's ever taken place in that regard. For years, you could be arrested by the federal government and never be charged. And you just had to stay in prison. And there were people that were arrested that are tragedies. Some of the people that are arrested, in fact, a considerable number of people that are arrested are pacifist preachers who are preaching against people enlisting in the war effort because it's wrong in the eyes of God to ever commit violence against anyone. Well, some of those preachers were judged to be hurting the war effort. Now, they earnestly believed it. They'd been pacifists. It's not like they were just using that as a cover, but they languished in jail. Some of them for years during the war without ever being charged under the basis of that law. So again, I, I don't mean that to, to denigrate Lincoln's memory, but what I mean it to say is Lincoln took many actions in the Civil War that he knew were a great expansion, what was was a great expansion of, of, of federal power. But he also thought they were necessary for his primary goal, and that was ending the war, saving the Union, and and freeing the slaves. And and, and those goals kind of sometimes caused him to, you know, allow things that you might not other allow to, to go on, like the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. And a historian looking at the matter of things in Utah objectively would say, at best, Lincoln sees the Latter-day Saints as a potential threat to the United States. And so he's being very prudent and cautious by having the territory occupied. He certainly doesn't want any violence there. I'm not saying that. He's, he's, but 
he receives multiple requests for the troops to be removed, and he doesn't remove them. Honestly, having the troops there when they're about to pass those two bills probably actually makes quite a bit of sense. It does make a lot of sense. And then on top of that, um, you know, in 18, when the troops uh, enlistments run out in Wyoming, they're in Laramie, um, Brigham Young will actually receive a notice uh, from the, the the troops that, hey, they want us to re-enlist. So in August 25th of 1862, um Brigham Young sends a telegraph to Adjutant General Thomas in Washington City. Governor Harding has received a telegram from Brigadier General Craig uh, at Laramie for the re-enlistment of Captain Lott Smith's company. So this is Brigham Young sending this to uh, the, the War Department. So their, their term ends because they were only serving for three months and there was a request to re-up them. And Brigham Young's going to ask the question that's going to demonstrate where the federal government really at, is at. And that is, well, if the whole reason why you called these troops out was to guard the stage and mail route because there weren't any troops in the area to guard it, and now there's a thousand California volunteers in Salt Lake. Why exactly again would you need these 170 men to reenlist instead of the thousand men that are already there, which you claim is to guard the mail route? But everyone knows that they're not actually there to guard the mail route. Um, he goes on to say, um, Please inform me whether the government wishes the militia of the territory of Utah to go beyond her borders while troops are here from other states who have been sent to protect the mail and telegraph property. So the, the, the point Brigham Young is trying to make, you want us to send troops to go defend other places while you're occupying Utah territory against our will. And look, Patrick Connor, the head of the California Volunteers that's uh, occupying Utah, someday we'll have like six podcasts in a row on him, and I'll just be so angry that I'll probably get thrown off the air and we'll have to put explicit on it, you know, and all kinds of stuff like that. Because Patrick Connor, while he's occupying Utah, is an inveterate antagonist of the Latter-day Saints. He is constantly, he will place a cannon directed at, at Brigham Young's house, threatening to shoot it if Brigham Young ever gets out of line, which is not what I've thought a way to win friends and influence people in the world. Um, but most heinous, Patrick Connor is, uh, while he tries to get a green light to, to attack the Latter-day Saints multiple times, he does get a green light to uh attack the, the American Indians in the area. And he is going to uh, perpetrate in January of 1863, the worst Indian massacre in American history. He is going to slaughter hundreds of primarily women and children um, at the Bear River Massacre. It is a horrific event and one in which the soldiers involved uh, commit all kinds of atrocities. And those troops are there because the federal government, including Abraham Lincoln, have refused 
the Latter-day Saint requests to move them out of their area. They are there against the will of the Latter-day Saints. They are there even after Latter-day Saints have proven their loyalty by not seceding, by sending troops. The reality is um, maybe Lincoln doesn't have a heavy hand on that. But as commander-in-chief, the buck does stop somewhere, right? Now, there are the anecdotal stories, especially that will grow up later, that Lincoln, you know, essentially told Brigham Young, if you mind your business, I'll mind mine. But it's pretty hard to say that he was minding his own business when he was passing a law that outlawed a portion of Latter-day Saint belief. I realize that most of the people listening are not fans of plural marriage. I'm not a fan of plural marriage. But that has nothing to do with the fact that the federal government passed a law specifically targeting Latter-day Saints because of one of their religious practices. It's pretty hard to argue that that is just letting you alone. I'll just plow around your fallen tree stump, except I'll outlaw part of your religion. Because it actually doesn't matter whether or not Americans are okay with the Latter-day Saint practice of plural marriage. What mattered is whether or not Latter-day Saints believed it was part of their religion. We can have all kinds of arguments about why they shouldn't have, or if they should have, or how happy we are that the manifesto was issued. Those are all immaterial to the point. The point is Latter-day Saints believed God had commanded them to practice plural marriage. And whether the federal government agrees that plural marriage is fine or not has no bearing on whether or not Latter-day Saints believe that God commanded them to do it. They did. They believe that Doctrine and Covenants section 132 was from God. They believe that. You can say they shouldn't have believed it. You can say, I wish they hadn't believed it. You can say all kinds of things. That doesn't change the fact that it is obvious from the historical record that Brigham Young and Orson Hyde and all the, the leaders of the church, they, they earnestly believed that God had commanded them to practice it, as did the women who defended plural marriage. They also believe that God had commanded them to practice it. So we have to kind of get away from the justification of what the federal government does, because, you know, I've got a problem with polygamy too, to, to the realities of the fact that that's their religion. Are we okay with the federal government dictating to people what they can and can't practice in their religion? And if the only reason we say yes is because we're thinking of things we don't like about other people's religion, well, I think that's actually the problem and the reason why we have a First Amendment. Because it, it, it doesn't matter whether or not I think someone wearing a headscarf is or isn't honoring God, or whether I personally think that someone wearing a headscarf is, you know, if someone thinks that that, you know, is, is a way of oppressing the woman who wears it. There are many millions of Muslim women who say that they wear a headscarf in order to honor God. You start to get into a pretty complicated area when you try to argue with those people. I know you think you're doing it to honor God, but you know what? I know better than you do. So let me make that illegal so you no longer have the choice anymore. The reality is, this is going to be kind of a fraught relationship. Now look, Abraham Lincoln, 
does not send thousands of marshals to Utah territory to arrest every person practicing polygamy. He neither has the time nor the manpower to do that in the midst of the civil war. Um, but it's just an erroneous argument to, to claim that he's actuated by some kind of testimony that he gained through the book of Mormon. If he did, he, he, he had a poor way of showing it by passing the first anti-Mormon law in American history. Um, again, this is not to say that Abraham Lincoln is not an incredible man and president. I revere Abraham Lincoln as a president, knowing all of those things I just said. Because people are complicated people. And even though Jonathan Turner wrote a book talking about how he wished Mormons were extinguished, he also was one of the leaders in the fight for education reform and for the end of slavery. I can respect Jonathan Turner's desperation to help those that were enslaved. At the same time, I can be irritated and annoyed that he allowed his religious religious fervor to attack the, the religion that I'm a part of today. I can look at Abraham Lincoln and say, the nation could not have survived without him. And, and the great tragedy of our day is that he was assassinated and allowed Andrew Johnson to become president, which is the greatest tragedy in American history, probably. Um, and still say that he rationally, as a member of the Republican Party, was worried about what Mormons were and are and knew that most Americans had a problem with them. Both of those things can be true. We don't have to compartmentalize things and it, to the point where we try to say every good person from history must have, while they were alive, basically been a dry Mormon. We all know that eventually those early presidents, most of them, uh, a couple of conspicuous uh, absent ones, uh, Van Buren Buchanan, but, Buchanan, but um, they are going to appear to Wilford Woodruff and ask for their temple work to be done. Well, that is a, a statement that there's this progression beyond. We don't have to prove that Abraham Lincoln you know, was a believer in the Book of Mormon before he left this life. Because we know that he was a believer later. Latter-day Saint belief allows people to come to the truth either in this life or the next. And sometimes we're so desperate that our heroes of our past, we, we want to kind of push them into that in this life rather than in the next. I understand why people want to believe it. Like I said, I want to believe it. But as a historian, I have to look at those things and I have to say, not only is there not good evidence for it, there's actually quite a bit of evidence the other way, demonstrating that in fact, Latter-day Saints were fairly justified in believing that at best, Abraham Lincoln was not going to help them. And at worst, he didn't have their best interests at heart. And that's just something that, you know, Latter-day Saints have to wrestle with. Don't worry, we can still celebrate President's Day. Like I said, I, I, I still read every biography on Abraham Lincoln I can get a hold of. But that, that doesn't mean I have to pretend 
that he was something that he wasn't, or that he was affected by the Book of Mormon in this life, especially because I'm certain that either now or at some point in the future, he will forever be impacted by the Book of Mormon, as will everyone, as every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ and and that this really is God's true church. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.